In the past few weeks, our nation has been shaken to its core with a staggering 25 murders in just 39 days. The surge in violent crimes, particularly murders, has skyrocketed beyond what anyone could have imagined. The fear gripping the general public's hearts is palatable, almost as if the air we breathe is thick with uncertainty and dread. As the government contemplates solutions, a critical question emerges. Have we overlooked the big picture? effects of these tragedies extend far beyond the immediate aftermath, touching the lives of those who never knew the victims personally. It's a collective trauma that can erode the very fabric of our communities, leaving behind a legacy of fear, mistrust, and unresolved grief. Tonight, we are joined by a panel of individuals dedicated to tackling these issues from the ground up. Together, we'll explore the essential work at the community level, which often goes unnoticed, but is vital in healing and preventing the cycle of violence. And more importantly, how can we support and expand the initiatives to rebuild the sense of safety and community that has been so profoundly eroded? Welcome to On the Record. I'm your host, Jerome Sawyer. We get started on the other side of this break. about to go down April 6th. It's Mr. Lucky's Big Raffle. It's your chance to win one of two brand new 2024 Suzuki Swift. $10,000 in cash, PS5, and more great cash prizes. Simply purchase a lotto ticket of $20 or more, or deposit $20 or more on a verified account. It's just that simple. So get in it to win it. Tickets available now through April 3rd. It's Mr. Lucky's Big Raffle. Winners take chances. Chances make winners. Chances remind you to game responsibly. This is on the record. Just barely into the second month of the year, we are already grappling with a grim milestone. The 25th murder in an alarming surge of violent crime that has left communities reeling and the entire country on edge. The rapid escalation of violence has not only shattered lives, but has also cast a long shadow over our nation's sense of security, prompting multiple travel warnings that threatened to tarnish our reputation on the global stage. 
But how did we get here? What led to such a drastic increase in violence in such a short period? And perhaps most importantly, what does this mean for our nation's number one industry, tourism, which thrives on peace and tranquility? Is that now in jeopardy? Well, Jasmine Brown brings us up to speed with a comprehensive report examining what led us to this point. We're waging war on the criminals. We're not going to relent. We will not. We will remain firm. We will remain focused. Police making it clear they want to clamp down on crime. But despite launching a series of tactics, the murder count continues to head further into the double digits. Since January 1st, there have been 24 murders, 22 in New Providence and one in Abaco and one in Grand Bahama. And the violence has been shocking. Take, for instance, the first homicide for the year, when a son allegedly stabbed his father to death in an upscale gated community in western New Providence. Three days later, a couple was shot and killed during a brazen daylight drive-by shooting on Prince Charles Drive. And on January 7th, a 16-year-old girl was shot and killed in Nassau Village. Then there was the fatal shooting of a grandmother on January 11th through Lily of the Valley Corner. While those incidents were shocking, authorities say suspects on bail make up the majority of victims this year, a trend that spilled over from 2023. Police Commissioner Clayton Fernander has made it clear he's no fan of the current bail laws. And it have to be some deterrent, man. It have to be some deterrent. The criminals are not feeling the full arm of the law. The Davis administration has since tabled legislation to amend the current Bail Act. But what's fueling the crime? Gangs. In a national address on January 15th, Prime Minister Philip Davis insisted they won't be tolerated. We're not just disrupting them. We are dismantling them. Two days later, National Security Minister Wayne Monroe told the Nassau Guardian that crime was down 20 percent last year. For Free National Movement leader Michael Pintard, the numbers mean very little. The general Bahamian uh, community have a fear of the pervasiveness of crime. Now, while we were able to track the murders so far this year, what we're all still waiting on is the release of the 2023 crime statistics. Once that happens, we'll have a true take on the crime situation across the country. Our next story brings us heartbreakingly close to the center of this crisis. It's a narrative of loss, despair, and a desperate plea for change, told through the voices of those who've paid the highest price. Tonight, Italia Hall shares the story of a mother enveloped in grief, having lost her last son to a recent murder. She shares her feelings on the unimaginable pain of losing her child in such a violent manner. But she's not alone in her sorrow. In the same report, we hear from a neighbor who seven years prior endured the agony of losing a son to violence. She makes a heartfelt plea to the community. My inside trembling. I, I, I can't explain it to you and tell you how I feel right now. That's my last son. I have four sons, that's the last one. A mother laughed with heartache as her son, 31-year-old Giovanni Joseph, was shot and killed shortly after six this morning. The news sent shockwaves through what has been described as a quiet neighborhood on Providence Avenue. Tarita Joseph says her son was about to leave for work. He went outside to start his vehicle, and that is when she heard the gunfire. I hear pop, 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 pop. So I go behind the door here, 
and take them people out. Then I see them drive out the car, spill over the car, and he was lying across in the middle right there to the gate, straight across, straight, got like he was coming back inside. Authorities confirming the 31-year-old is not known to police. His mother describing him as a humble person. He ain't give no trouble, you understand? You know, young boys sit out here with a couple of friends. You used to have a lot of friends, but not anymore. You might have one or two sitting outside on the porch here, drinking, talking, foolishness, laughing. That's it. Resident Dolores Adderley, who did not want to be seen on camera, says hearing the gunshots was a traumatizing experience as her son was gunned down in the same community outside her home in 2017. I didn't think it was going to come back to Chippenham, but it's back here again. We don't have gangs in Chippenham, but it spills over because we don't know where our kids are. We don't know what our children are involved in. We must take a better role as parents. I, I have to reiterate that. I have to. This tragedy would not stop until we as a community come together and parents go back to being parents. We can't continue to condone wrong. We cannot have a blind eye to things that we know our children are doing what is wrong. And to the person or persons responsible for the death of Joseph's son, here's what she had to say. At the end of the day, you got to reveal yourself and God sees you cannot hide from him. No matter what you do, at the end of the day, you, you're going to be revealed. You understand? That somebody's child is killing, not a bird. It's somebody's child. Somebody's belly pain. You understand? As we continue our conversation on the impact of violence within our communities, we are joined by a distinguished guest who brings a wealth of experience and insight to our discussion. Attorney John Boswick has been at the forefront of mediation efforts working tirelessly to bridge divides. His work not only addresses the symptoms of community violence, but also tackles the underlying issues, offering hope and a path forward for those caught in the cycle of aggression. We're eager to hear your perspective, sir. Welcome back to On the Record. Uh, Jerome, it's always a pleasure to sit with you. Um, and sadly, uh, to address a topic such as this, um, but always a pleasure to be here. Well, sir, based on your experience working directly with individuals involved in gangs, what are some of the common themes or life circumstances that lead people to adopt this lifestyle? You know, um, Jerome, firstly, I'm happy that you've taken this kind of angle to, to start to look more deeply at the root sources of, of, of the criminal uh, scourge that we now face. Um, and, and yes, I have been working uh, closely with gangs and inner city youths for, in fact, most of my professional career, which is now the better part of almost 30 years. Um, we have formed many outreach um, programs, starting back um, with Positive Vibes, and it grew into to different movements. But <clears throat> we've learned that at the source of this, a lot of it is, is, is impoverished conditions. But apart from impoverished conditions, it's a, a, a breakdown of the foundations of our, of our society, things that are, are are what I call foundational elements of society, including sadly the family structure, um, and a lot of young men who find themselves um, looking for a, a a source of strength and, and solace and direction, and finding it in all of the wrong places. Two things: we continue to tout our successes in tourism as a nation. Uh, we continue to be proud of what we've been able to achieve economically. 
how is it that so many people, so many of our people are still in, for, in an impoverished state, one. Two, we always are proud to say we are a Christian nation with a church on every corner, um, and really we, we, we follow um, we follow Christ. We, 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 we are people who know the Bible, can quote it on demand. How is it then that these two things continue to be such factors in where we find ourselves? You know, prayer without works is, is an idle pursuit. Um, I guess that's, and that's a kinder way of saying it than it's said in the Bible. Um, and great evil abides where good men stand idle. All right? We must be zealous of good works. We must come out from the places of worship, I add, and go out and administer in the street. We can't expect that people are going to come into these edifices and seek solace. We have to go and deliver salvation. This is my humble feeling. Um, so the... I often say, Jerome, on reflection, that what we suffer from, I call it I-theory, um, ignorance, idleness, and identity, all right? And that's what's going on in the inner cities and amongst the so-called criminal element. And people think ignorance is a really dirty word. It's not a dirty word because ignorance is easily correctable through the provision of information. So a lot of us exist in a state of ignorance. Um, even us who are sitting here behind these tables, we are trying to figure out what is, what's going on. So that's a state of ignorance, eh? Um, and so we're seeking to inform ourselves. Um, I say that the cure to this I theory, uh, the cure to ignorance, the cure to idleness, a cure to uh, an identity crisis, um, because sadly, um, many of our young people are facing an identity crisis that is deeply rooted in the fact that they really don't know who they are, and they don't know who they are in many cases. They don't know who their fathers are. We're facing a, a, a live birth uh, statistics where more than 80% are born out of wedlock. So there's, there's an identity issue. How do you fix all of that? Education. Information is education. So education, education, education. Education cures an identity problem. We have to be told who we are. And that includes being told who we are as individuals and also as Bahamians and also as young black um, people in control of a whole country. So there's a level of education in, 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 that we need to give. That if you are now an educated person, you're less idle, you're more able to employ, find employment. Um, and the, of course, education simply cures ignorance. I want to go back, though, to talk about really some of the some of the things that you see that cause people to, young people, to really choose a life of crime and violence. You aren't born to say, you know what, I, I'm gonna go and pick up a gun and first opportunity or rob. But what is it that you identify, uh, some of the things that you've identified that, that really draws people into a life of crime and violence? Um, again, Jerome, I think a lot of it has to do with a lack of active, positive mentorship. So that, that presence of strong, positive, and I dare say male mentorship. Um, and, and in the absence of that, there's also, and I, and I'll, I dare say, an element of self-preservation. Mm. All right? There's an element of needing to be a part of because they themselves are also finding themselves afraid. 
And if you're not a part of one or the other, you are unprotected. That's where the gangs come from. That's where the, that's where the gangs come from. Or you're not a part of a strong crew. You, you know, and, and, and sadly, um, Jerome, we keep saying the gangs. We are a nation of gangs. So I'm going to ask, okay? is it organized we're, we're, gang or is it gang because these are my boys? I win. Yeah, because these are my boys. This is my family. This is my cousin. This is my large brother. This is, I'm a member of the police. I'm a member of the Rotary. I'm a member of this. These are all gangs. We are a nation of gangs. We're a nation of cliques. We're a nation of networks. We're humans. Where humans find that collective security, this is why we have society at its base level philosophically, collective security. Okay? So if you're living in an inner city where violence is the neighborhood, collective security. Um, and I don't think we need to, to make it more complex than that. And a lot of us are operating under collective security for our own like personal advancement. This is why people join the Rotary for networking. All right? Yeah, you're right. How do we begin, though, to, well, before you even get to that, you know, we look at, um, uh, almost on a daily basis, we're running to cover crime scenes, we're reporting on crime, we're looking. This is the end stage for me. Mm -hmm. um, what we see is, you know, how it's now boiled over into the public. But, you know, I always ask people, how bad is it? What what we are being told, what we're reporting on, what we're seeing, to me is only sometimes just the surface, but how really bad is it in those areas? And where, to what end? You know, to, I'll answer that question because I've seen it live and up close over years. Um, but just to the point of collective security and how you fix it, you have to have a stronger gang. You have to have a stronger group of individuals to belong to. And... That is doable, and so we and, and bring us back to that. Okay, that is doable. The the stronger group are the positive elements in society. Nobody wants to have to have collective security, and that is to associate yourself with a group of killers. Mm. All right, but if you could have collective security and associate yourself with a strong group of mentors, a strong group of people who are educating you, trying to get you better opportunities, better employment opportunities, I'd rather associate myself with that. But how often do I have the chance to expose myself to that? All right, and how, how present is that gang in my neighborhood, okay? So I think we need to take that positive gang into these neighborhoods, and why? Um, from the time that I was a candidate even in Bain and Groundstown, I live in Bain and Groundstown, number nine to this day. So, um, the, and my first incursion into social outreach was at age 18, that, that's, phew. I almost don't want to say how long ago that <laughs> That's is. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. <laughs> All right. So, so say 30 plus years ago, mm -hmm. um, when I formed an outreach program called Hold, Homes for the Old, Lonely, and Destitute. So that long ago, um, uh, Jerome, this is in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, I was able to identify that there were persons living in impoverished conditions, and that situation remained when I was knocking on doors in 2017. Um, so the, the, you know, like 2012, where persons are still using outdoor toilets, where persons are still toting water um, from the pump, where there are 21-year-old individuals, um, male and female, who never have had the experience of having a shower, never had the experience of standing up under running water having a shower. They've been bathing in bucket all their entire life. Okay. So where there are lots where old folks have been abandoned, and this is why we formed home, 
Old folks have been abandoned in houses that are falling down around them where there is no floor. But you might think that that is a, 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 a shanty or a, a wooden shack. But when you step across the threshold, there's actually no floor in the building. So then <clears throat> there are persons who are second and third generations in that situation. We now have persons who are second and third generation in a situation where they have what they call a functional learning difficulties because of the level of illiteracy throughout their family structure. Okay, where you have second and third generation persons who are facing illiteracy through that situation. So, yes, there is a, there is a crisis. We drive past that every day and don't see it. We don't, there are many of us who are completely disconnected from that. Well, when you say we, okay, there's a very small percentage of us who actually even drive past that every day. Well, that's true. I mean, I because say drive past. We drive, <clears throat> yeah, we drive past the community without, Jerome, without looking are, left or right. There's a very large percentage of us who drive the coast road. That's true. Very large percentage. Yep. Okay? Mm -hmm. Because we purposely want to avoid that. We don't want to absorb that reality. But we also have to face the fact that within that reality <clears throat> are the vast workforce, and there are persons who come out of that reality every day into our resorts, into our workplaces, and then they have to step back into that reality. So um, that is a social dilemma that needs to be addressed. And as I say, that, that, that is, a, I don't want to say easy, but it can be addressed simply through an old-fashioned notion called care. It don't even have to be love. Caring for and an awareness for and a kind of reach back to. A lot of us have come out of these areas. A lot of us have our navel strings or our parents' mm -hmm. navel strings buried in these areas. Homesteads, homes, family okay? homes, yeah. And too many of us have moved out moved east or west, and don't look back. A lot of us have become the absentee landlord who might pass on a Saturday or Sunday, collect the rent, and move through. But we can't be absentee landlords. Which I guess brings me to, to, to the next point of discussion. How do we begin to slow down, stop, and turn around? Because for me, it's not just a turn around. Um, how do we begin, and uh, I, I want to look at it collectively and individually. Um, later on, we talked to uh, Archdeacon Keith Cartwright, who's, who is and whose church and other churches, I won't just say his, but other churches are involved individually, but as a community now, how do we begin to slow down, stop, turn around the cycle? You know, one of the things we did when we worked with Positive uh, Vibes, um, and then we created an entity called Yaroh. Yaroh is actually a Hebrew term, um, meaning God our shepherd. Um, and these were massive <clears throat> entities that at that time had representatives from the leadership of every known gang uh, in the country. One of the groups that we reached out to was the Christian Council. So I personally have sat and met with the leaders of the Christian Council, multiple leaders of the Christian Council, and in fact, the entire Christian Council on different occasions, alongside um, Dr. Debbie Bartlett <clears throat> and others. And there is a feeling, even amongst those involved in the gangs, that the church is a source of, of the answer, or part of the answer. Mm -hmm. um, there, 
There needs, in my humble opinion, as I say, there needs to be a bigger gang, um, Jerome. There needs to be a gang of positivity. And again, this is why we started so all those years ago with positive vibes. Um, we, we wanted to create a, a, a group of individuals who are so positively motivated that would counterbalance the negativity. And think what we have to realize is <clears throat> for a young man to get other young men to follow him into that level of violence and degradation, it takes a certain level of leadership. And so we want to find a way to take those leaders and that leadership quality and infect it with positivity. The okay? right people. With the right people, with the surrounding of the right people and the right opportunities. Because we also have to understand that we have to displace an economy. There is an economy in crime. I hate to be so bold and blunt about it, but there's income generated from crime, from criminal activity. That income goes towards paying school fees, taking care of mm -hmm. people, buying mm -hmm. food, and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. You hear the story, okay? you're right. So you have to have ways in which to displace the income from crime while realizing that you're dealing with persons who might be charismatic in leadership quality, but also persons who are, are ignorant, but in no way stupid, no. poorly educated, and, and sadly, I say, dare, dare say, failed by the education system, but no, in no way stupid. Final, final question as we wrap up today. As individuals, uh, we, I ask this question all the time. What can we do? Sometimes you just feel powerless. And in our fear, in our concern, we retreat to our homes, lock doors, drive the coast, as you say, avoid areas, avoid situations. But as individuals now, um, because this is a, a, a problem that is affecting all of us, what do we do as individuals? Uh, Jerome, that's a, uh, there's much that we can do. Um, one of the things that I say that we as Bahamians at every level have to now starting to reinvest in our communities, reinvest in our society, reinvest in where our navel string, wherever your navel string is buried, become concerned about that ground and start to reinvest in it. And when I say that, reinvest your time in mentoring the people around that area, reinvest your actual funds one of the things missing from our society, from our societal structure, is philanthropic society, okay? Is that society that's based around associations and based around charity and based around the private sector organizing itself to giving back towards enriching its society. Because no public sector, no government, and we've seen this, every administration has failed to address the situation. It's just getting worse. And that is true around any developed world, any developed country. The government cannot do it all. Mm -hmm. The government needs help from the private sector. The government needs help from philanthropic society. And we need to develop that at every level and start to reinvest in our inner cities, reinvest in mentorship programs across the board, and take responsibility for those who are our own. John, thank you very much. I know we could talk for a whole lot longer. Um, I know you always have so much uh, to share with us and so many uh, nuggets to share, but I thank you so much for being a part of this discussion. Um, I think whatever we are going to do has to begin with a little bit of self-evaluation. Um, and I, I hope that we have started on that. Most definitely. And Jerome, thank you. Thank, thank you much. Well, the journey through grief and loss can be a harrowing path for many. However, understanding this mental toll is crucial in forging paths towards healing 
and resilience. Stay with us because next we delve into the psychological impact of such tragedies after the break. We'll speak with a therapist specializing in navigating the turbulent waters of grief. You're watching On the Record. We'll be back after this break with more invaluable conversations and expert perspectives. I'm Michaela Kerr. I'm an 18-year-old freshman at the University of the Bahamas, and I'm a computer science major. I'm also the NT Corporation's Youth Ambassador for the Environment, and I'm an environmentalist. My journey as an environmental advocate began with a simple yet profound realization that our environment is degrading right in front of my eyes. And being NT's Youth Ambassador for the Environment means that my words and my actions hold the power to help change the environment and the world around me. I find it exciting that I can be a student live my life and use my words and my voice to change the environment and world around me. Most times I think it's a privilege, it's our environment and it's our generation to own. I don't think as a young person that there's anything more rewarding than being a part of bringing awareness. I'm Michaela Kerr and I'm making a difference in my own words. Are you or a loved one under medical care? Do you need affordable medical supplies? Ports International is the largest home health care supplier. Medical supplies at the very best price. And you can even shop online. From hospital beds to wound care, wheelchairs to walkers, Ports is a one-stop shop for your medical supplies and we accept insurance. We have online shopping and two locations to serve you. At the Airport Industrial Park and Shirley Street. We also ship to the Family Islands. Shop online and visit us on Facebook. Call Ports at 377-1771. You've heard of electric cars. Now it's time you drive one. Easy Car Sales welcomes you to experience the power and prestige of the latest electric vehicles. Plug in at home for a 65% discount off your gas bill and never get stuck at the pump again. Build your dreams of a better future with a better car. The BYD EV. Visit easy242.com to book your free test drive today. Save your money while driving in style. Only at Easy Car Sales. The psychological impact of such events can reverberate through individuals, families, and communities, leaving a lasting imprint on the hearts and minds of those affected. In these moments of vulnerability, the guidance and support of professionals become invaluable. We're honored to have Jessica Russell, a dedicated therapist based in Grand Bahama at the Family Wellness Center with us tonight. She brings a wealth of knowledge and compassion to her work. Jessica, welcome to the show. We're eager to learn your insights tonight. So could you, uh, first you of all, start uh, by helping us to understand the unique aspects of grief that individuals and families face after experiencing loss uh, due to violence? And how does this differ from other types of grief? Well, we're familiar with the stages of traditional grief, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and eventually acceptance. But with grief or the loss of a loved one due to violence, that anger is usually more intense. Um, it could be focused on the perpetrator or police, maybe even emergency services. 
there might be a lot of guilt or self-blame. If only I did this or if only this happened. Um, there's a lot of hyper-focusing on the incident itself and details surrounding it. Um, hyper-vigilance is a big issue. So there's a lot of concern. How do you begin okay. to counsel, though, folks who are dealing with that? Um, how I, I, We talked about you, you very um, expertly laid out the difference, but how do you begin to counsel people who are dealing with that type of grief, but grief particularly when anger is involved? Well, the, the first thing is to just say it's okay to be angry, um, that you should feel your feelings and you should take your time with that. Don't rush to be okay and don't rush to forgive either. And that that usually goes in direct opposition to the messaging that they might get from society or even loved ones. Um, there's a lot of pressure to sort of be okay after something like that or pressure, sorry, pressure to forgive. And that that's not necessary right away. Um, so feeling your feelings and understanding as well, typical responses to grief, um, but also knowing that Grief looks different to every individual. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. And the only thing to really sort of look for is, are you maybe coping with unhealthy behaviors? And that's the, that's where you want to avoid that sort of thing. But there's no right or wrong way to grieve. I think sometimes uh, we forget or overlook, I wouldn't say forget, overlook uh, when children and adolescents are involved. Um, whether they are the children of the victims or the perpetrators, they too are involved. How do you um, help to get them to understand and to process all that's happening around them? Um, well, talk to them. So talk to them about their feelings, about what happened, about their feelings about what happened. Um, answer any question that they have truthfully, but of course, with developmentally appropriate language, let them know that whatever they're feeling is okay and that you'll support them through it. Um, often having just one trusted adult can make a big difference in terms of reducing the impact of this exposure to violence, reducing the long-term impact of this exposure to violence. Um, we have a nasty habit culturally of thinking children should be seen and not heard, but they're people just like you and me. And if anything, they need more patience and more acceptance and more um, understanding. Um, so something like early exposure to violence is that's something that we call an adverse childhood experience. And the presence of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs um, can often lead to lifelong negative health outcomes. Um, and that is the things you might expect, like behavioral issues or anxiety, depression, PTSD, but also physical illness, like gastrointestinal problems, stroke, heart disease. So th these are big, uh, lifelong health impacts. And it's, it's very important that Prevention is a focus, but also treatment early on. I want to focus on another segment. You know, as as boys um, who eventually become men, we are taught to suck it up, 
uh, to not cry, to be tough, um, to be the leaders in the home. But often we are the ones who are really immersed in this cycle. Again, whether we are uh, the victims or perpetrators or connected in some way. And we're not a society that talks a lot about these kinds of things. How do you address that? A big thing that I think people should be encouraged to do is to teach healthy sort of gender norms and a lot of education around gender equality. Um, Comprehensive sex ed as well is critical. Um, Education on healthy relationships, um, conflict management, emotional intelligence, and that sort of starts with self-awareness as well. So that's where feeling your feelings and encouraging them to talk it out, giving them the language as well um, early, early on is important. So, um, and sort of to what you said is moving away from that idea that you can't cry because you're a boy. Boys cry, men cry, Um, teaching, and I mentioned conflict management, but teaching healthy ways to deal with conflict interpersonally, um, at work, in the community, all of that is vital to sort of avoid the types of incidences you're talking we're, about. We're not good with conflict management at all. No, no. no. Uh, conflict, a natural part of life, and there absolutely is a healthy way to deal with it. And it starts with having those uncomfortable conversations. You mentioned language too. Um, yes. and, and that's very important as somebody who who deals in language every day, you know, words matter. You know, and how do mm-hmm. you begin to have those conversations about what is acceptable or what is the, I don't know if it is acceptable language or how do you begin to position those conversations? Um, well, it starts by having them, right? So if you, and words are important. It's important that the words you're using are accurate and that you consider the impact on the person you're speaking with. So impact um, is a good first step or first area to focus as well. So as we talk about this cycle of violence that we find ourselves in, um, as a community, uh, we are having to deal with a lot of, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of apprehension. People are, you know, questioning how and when to leave their homes whether to participate in recreational activities, those kinds of things. Um, you know, how do we begin to manage that even as individuals when you're inundated constantly with with crime and criminal activity and even the fear of it? Well, you know, there's the phrase that knowledge is power. So it's important to educate yourself on what's happening, what's happened, what's being done to address the issue by authorities. Um, And as you mentioned, it's also important to make sure you're not overexposing yourself to that sort of stuff. So know what's happened and what's happening, but you don't have to click on every video and watch every story. (laughs) Right. Scroll past it, yeah. Yeah, educate yourself enough that you know what's happening and what is being done to address it, but you don't have to constantly watch everything. And then from there, 
do, you know, what you're advised to do to protect yourself from authorities and people who sort of know what they're talking about. And from there, if the fear does creep up, because it does, and you can't control that, is acknowledge it. Don't try to ignore it. Do what helps you to feel safe, whatever that is. I was going to, I think that leads me to my next question. Sometimes we feel paralyzed or even a sense of hopelessness. So what kinds of positive actions and things uh, should we engage in to make us feel more in control um, of the situation? Again, that leads to education, but also um, to look out for each other. So if you have neighbors that you have a good relationship with, you guys can look out for each other. Um, lean on loved ones, what are other people going through, um, that sort of thing. Just, uh, you know, a few days ago, a, a young woman took her life, you know, on the bridge here in, in New Providence, raising the question about, you know, the stresses of life, work, every just, you know, even mental health issues. And a lot of times we just feel powerless. You see a situation, you see someone in distress, but you just literally don't know what to do. What advice would you give to people, no matter what it is that they're dealing with or they're managing? I, I know sometimes even in my own space, I see people and I'm concerned, but you don't want to be offensive. You don't want to be intrusive. How do you manage that? How do you reach out? What do you do? That's a great question. That would absolutely depend on the person, what you're noticing, how close you are as well. Um, you, If you know them a bit, then you might be able to know they would take offense to this or they would understand that. Um, that would absolutely depend on the person, but a good step generally is to listen and to reach out to just, depending on what someone's going through, you might not have the words to fix it. It might not be something that can be fixed, but just knowing that you are there and that you care in some way is a great first step. And how do you, because obviously we're not the professionals, how do you go about, you know, getting professional help or even advising that people get that kind of professional help? You mean how do you suggest to someone? How do you suggest it, yeah. You, again, the wording would depend on how close you are, um, but you could say, do you think you might want to talk to someone about this? Mm -hmm. um, or... Maybe something like, this doesn't seem like something you should be going through alone. I know of so-and-so. Maybe you should talk to them. Um, or even better, um, you could you could offer something that you've been doing. Or I've had good results with talking to this group or, you know, that sort of thing. Okay, so offering final Final, final question. What role does mental health awareness play in addressing the root causes of crime and helping the, the public to cope with everything that is happening around us? It's absolutely vital. Um, education is crucial. I've talked about some of these already, mm -hmm. um, but school or community-based programs that might increase emotional intelligence, conflict management we already talked about, um, gender equality, all of those things are at the root of a lot of violence. Addressing uh, poverty and housing issues is a big thing. Um, there's a 
a saying that crime and violence is a public health issue. Um, job training and mentoring programs help. Um, all of those are at the root of a lot of violent acts. And oh, addressing those things now could reduce over time. Jessica, thank you so very much. You certainly have helped to put this uh, issue into perspective for us a whole lot better. I think, you know, when we talk about crime and violence and these issues, we always look to uh, law enforcement um, and those agencies and, and those involved to help or even look to the government to do things. But this is so very, very important. You mentioned something that crime and violence is seen as a public health issue, and you're right. Mm -hmm. And I think once we start to categorize it as that uh, more, uh, we'll begin to, to get to, to some of the root uh, root causes of the problem. Again, thank you very much. And thank you for our continued to do great work um, and, and the work that you are doing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. When we return, we'll be joined by a familiar face who's no stranger to this road. Insights and experiences promise to shed further light on the path ahead for individuals and communities alike. You're watching On the Record. Stay with us. Doctors Hospitals reimagined primary care. We've invested to improve our health system, ensuring that accessible, affordable, world-class clinical care is closer to you. Your relationship with a primary care provider shapes the foundation of your overall health. Our new, modern primary care facilities are where critical diagnosis and true personalized treatment begin. With locations across New Providence, Grand Bahama, and Exuma, we invite you to experience the Doctors Hospital difference. Book your next appointment at clinics.doctorshoss.com. Introducing the Focal Smart Pass app that helps you to fuel up faster. Here's how it works. Download the app on the App Store or get it on Google Play and create your profile with payment details. Visit your nearest Shell station, open the app, scan the pump's QR code, select your payment amount and begin fueling. Say goodbye to cash and cards because the Focal Smart Pass offers secure and convenient payment options right at your fingertips. Download Focal Smart Pass now and fuel up faster today. Health is the greatest gift. That's where we come in. Bahamas Medical and Surgical Supplies is a premier distributor of medical equipment, as well as medical and surgical consumables. Our engineers are always on hand, providing top care service that saves lives. We carry a wide selection of over-the-counter and prescription items, IV fluids, and other injections. Our products are state-of-the-art, and our entire team stays on top of cutting-edge technology. With more than two decades of dedicated service, Bahamas Medical and Surgical Supplies continues to be a trendsetter and innovator in healthcare. We have set ourselves apart by truly caring for our customers. We understand the intricacies of healthcare, and we produce spectacular results. We cherish our partnerships and nurture our friendships as we continue on our quest to help everyone maintain that wonderful gift of good health. Find us on 9th 5th Terrace Centerville, right in the heart of the Medical Service Epicenter of Nassau, Bahamas. If you were with us last week, you'd remember the powerful testimony from a reformed gang member who shared his journey out of the streets and into a new chapter of his life. He mentioned specific individuals whose intervention was a turning point in his life, shining a beacon of hope when needed. 
On Tuesday, we had the privilege of sitting down with one of those pivotal figures, Archdeacon Keith Cartwright. He's a man whose dedication to helping disenfranchised members of our community, especially those entangled in gang life. As our team pulled up to the gates of St. Agnes, they heard shots fired. Upon further investigation, our team discovered they were in the midst of the 25th murder of the year, just feet away from the church's gates. With an active crime scene outside, it's evident that Cartwright's work goes beyond the spiritual. It's about tangible change, offering a lifeline to those seeking a way out. Take a look at the interview. Archie, can I, we're going to talk a little bit about the situation in the country. Um, your observation, what factors do you think are contributing to the recent spike in violence in the country? I think, um, quite frankly, Jerome, it is a breakdown in home and family life. Now, and people keep saying, oh, well, we've heard that over and over. But the family is the nucleus of any society. And when there's not a secure, loving environment where children are brought up with the passing on of good Christian values, or certainly good values, then we have a situation where, where people are really brought up with no kind of value for life, no kind of value for honesty, hard work, or work in general. And so it's a situation where people are sort of bringing themselves up. You know, in, in the old days, and I, 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 I wouldn't want to say, say that like that, but in times formal, um, we had, even if there was not a mother and a father there married, there were grandparents and siblings who were older who had that Christian value set in their life living, or even if it wasn't in their life living, they certainly espoused that. And, and so our children are growing up with no sense of, of value. And the, the statistic that really bothers me the most, because I follow them from the Department of Statistics, every 10 years we have the census. And the only number that is growing exponentially is the number of persons who are unchurched. Um, even the numbers of persons who claim to be, say, Anglicans, is around 40,000, 50,000 out of the the, the 400,000 Bahamians or residents of the Bahamas there is, and that's been stuck for a long time. But even out of the 40,000 Anglicans, you may get maybe 10,000 that are really regular churchgoers. But the rest of those will say, yes, I'm an Anglican. But we have well over 50,000 plus persons now who are saying, I don't belong to anything. You know, I, I, I don't have any belief systems. And just the other day, I walked into into, um, into one of our stores, and there was a lovely lady who was a cashier. I, she said to me, she said, um, uh, are you a priest? I said, yes. I said, and your name, and she gave me her name. I say, um, how are you doing today? So she said, I'm just thinking. Um, I am 42. I have um, three teenage children, um, but I have never been to church. My husband, 
my, my partner, she said, has never been to church. Um, we, you know, is it important to go to church? Just out of the blue. And I was dumbstruck. And of course, I interacted with her. She's now going to uh, a church near her residence. But it struck me that here was this lovely lady as a cashier in one of our prominent stores who just because I, I, I had on my clerics just ventured out and asked. So we have a tremendous job ahead of us because if people don't know about love, if they don't experience that, if they don't know what it is to be honest, to be hardworking, not to steal, to, to, to always show love instead of violence, then where are we going? Just as we were preparing to do this interview, uh, shots fired, a young man lost his life just a block over. In your work in the community, in working with perpetrators, victims, families, what are the common threads that you see, the things that, that really cause you to be concerned about where we're headed? Well, I am very concerned with a lack of supervision and a lack of togetherness and a lack of community. Um, when I grew up um, in the Bahamas of yesteryear, we were all together. We, we worked as a, as, a, as a brotherhood, as a, as a team, as, 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 as friends, and we, we cherished, even though we had fights with rocks and bottles and stuff like that, um, nevertheless, there were people who were around who were able to bring resolution to things. We talked it out. There's no talking now, Jerome. You know, it, it, just, it just erupts into violence. If somebody takes something or does something, it just erupts into violence. And the, the language, the horrible language that is being used, even by the, the women today, is horrific in front of little children. And, and you know, even as I, as I challenge them, say, well, yeah, how you do? They, they fired a cuss at, at me as well, but I don't back down. I just say, well, come now, let's, let's talk this thing out. I mean, I'd be, it takes a long time for, for me to try to calm a person down. And because there's a, a, so many bad words, so many, so many grabbing of knives, pulling out of guns, is a proliferation of guns, un unbelievable. And this is only because people want to have a weapon to, to settle scores, whatever it is. And uh, there's no kind of reasoning at all, you know. Um, last week, we were able to interview a reformed gang member uh, on this very show. He talked about what he used to do, but how his life, to, how his life has changed. He credited St. Agnes and you for turning his life around. <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> what is, as, as I listened to that, and I'm sure as the audience heard that, it gave me pause because a lot of time the church is really criticized for not doing enough. But when I heard that, and he, he went on to say that it's the church that's helping a lot of people unbeknownst to the public. So I ask, you know, how much more can the church do and what is the role of other organizations because obviously it sounds like the church is in some areas doing some things can you be doing more as a church um, and what is the role of other organizations out there well certainly uh, as i've said before um, we have to recognize in the bahamas that that that, that criminal activity 
is all of our business. It's the entire community's business, and we have to make sure that we respond to it as a community. But we have to get back to basics, Jerome. We have to get back to where we espouse values and show how these values make sense. And you see, it's, it's one thing preaching it or teaching it, but they have to see it in action. They have to feel it. And, and that is what draws them to, to it. So the church has a responsibility. We can't just come to worship. People say, well, uh, you know, uh, Father, you, 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 know, you don't really have much to do because it's, you, you, know, you have services every day, but then, you know, that is it. No, that's just the, that's the least, least um, time-consuming part of, of our responsibility. Every day we got to get out there and show God's love. Demonstrate it. And, and that costs a lot. Uh, as you know, the, um, um, in St. Agnes, I'm here every week asking people to just give a little bit more for social outreach. And it is so important. And so I try to challenge the churches as much as we receive we need to try and give back at least a tithe. So if a church takes in 100000 a year, let's make sure spend at least 10000 back in the community in some program to help the community. The government can't do it alone. Um, and, and so something has to be done where all our organizations have to get together. And then we have to be responsible for our own actions. I mean, how we talk to one another, the things we say, I mean, people make us angry, but then we have to show respect for other opinions. Um, how people behave in Parliament is important. How people behave in the church is important. And, and how we behave in our homes are important. We, you know, we have to respect our spouses, respect our children, listen to them, and always show love and have discipline. No, you can't do this. And this is the reason why you can't. Daddy loves you, mommy loves you, but I'm sorry, you're not going to go out at this particular time. You're not going out in this kind of dress. You, you know, you have to be home at a certain time. And nobody's calling you at this hour of the night. Whatever the case may be, there has to be discipline. But it has to be shown in the context of love. And that is why in my short time, I have made it my life's mission to, to mentor as many pos uh, persons as possible, both males and females. You bring up a very important point and something that we discovered in our conversations. A lot of men are missing from the home. Fathers are missing. Role models are missing. Where are our men? What has happened to them? And how do we get them back to be the role models to grow up young men and young women? Well, again, we have emasculated our men in many occasions. And, you know, men uh, ought to be educated a little different from women. Uh, people don't, un don't get it, but, you know, but that is the truth. And, and we need to pay particular attention to men. We can't expect the men to be really enthused about education and values when all they see in education are women. Um, no disrespect, fabulous and good women teachers, but we have to get the males back into the classrooms. 
We have to. In our organizations, we have to push the men to lead our organizations. And, and so it's important for us to lift up our men. And that is why here at St. Agnes, we have a very, very good men's group. We've just lost our young president, Thomas McIntosh, who was a wonderful 33-year-old. But his entire executive are in their 30s. And they attract other young men to say, well, listen, there's something about joining the church men. We do things, we do stuff to make a difference. And here are the things we do. And that fellowship and that bond that is, that is gathered, it is so heartwarming. And that is why I am so proud of what um, Officer Thomas did and his group. And I'm very, very, very encouraging to see the results of that. And we will continue to do that. I remember when I was in seminary in Barbados many years ago. And there was a church there by the name of St. Mary's just in Bridgetown, and their success was that there was an old English priest who said he came to get as many men back into the church. And it was amazing as a young seminarian to see the amount of men that were in St. Mary's Church. But when they brought the men into church, the women flocked and the children came. And it was a huge congregation. I can well recall it. And I've always said, if you were to really target the men and really try your best to, to work with them, everything else will fall into place. That's not to say that we're not going to take care of the women or the children, but by extension, because they are so vulnerable today in our society, we really need to, to education, get more males into the classroom who are good examples. You know, you just can't pay teaches those kind of salaries. You gotta get the men of the church to get involved in the community. We can't just be insular, gotta get out. The action is on the streets. Jesus spent most of his time not in the synagogue. He spent it on the highways and byways. We're gonna emulate him, that's the way we gotta do it. I want to extend my deepest gratitude to our guests for their invaluable insights and heartfelt contributions. Let's commit to being active participants in our communities, offering a helping hand where needed and supporting those in their darkest hours. Together, we can create a safer, more compassionate world. And so, as we part ways tonight, I encourage each of you to stay safe, informed, and engaged. Thank you for joining us on The Record. Good night, everyone.